Thaddeus Ellenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. The Eternal Tattler of Tinseltown. Recent news of the Barker Company's deal for an immense tell-all about Tinseltown was met with equal parts excitement, indignation, and intrigue with the included announcement of its author, Gene Bottle, the pseudonym of a millennium's old Los Angeles-area genie that claims he's granted over 2,000 wishes for some of Hollywood's biggest names. The soon-to-be-published 323-page expose promises readers detailed accounts and insights into the hasty and often shocking wishes made by the movie industry's wealthiest and most powerful men and women. Unfortunately, little is known of its ageless author, who has already undergone a barrage of criticism from a growing list of film and television personalities. The Hollywood Privacy Board, a group of influential filmmakers and actors dedicated to spearheading gossip, labeled Mr. Bottle the loose-lipped genie and publicly declared their outrage at the Barker Company for putting quarterly earnings ahead of their integrity. Mr. Bottle issued a response via Twitter saying, I'm not a doctor, I'm a genie, and therefore presumed confidentiality falls more or less under buyer beware, hashtag genie folklore. The Barker Company stood behind their decision by not only praising Mr. Bottle's character, calling him uniquely qualified to tell the Hollywood story, but by also releasing several juicy pages of what has now been titled Three Wishes, a Genie's Memoir. Following are several excerpts. In the spring of 1970, I emerged with great relief from my alabaster prison, urgently seeking a toothbrush and eager to hear of the stone's success at Altamont, when I found myself in the presence of a Hollywood icon. Standing there before me on the soiled shag of a crumbling L.A. apartment was the haggard and unkempt remnants of legendary film actor Paul Kiefer. Paul hadn't been in pictures since 1952, and at the time of my arrival had $1.19 in his pocket and was all but consumed by a severe addiction to cheese in the can. Are you here for the linens, he asked, wheezing. I can't get out the pimentos. I informed him I was a genie there to grant him three wishes. He appeared distracted, perplexed by a mustard stain on his mustache that he tongued at periodically. I grabbed his attention with a flashy yet routine shape-shifting exhibition, which included me morphing into an image of the once prestigious actor at age 11 and a 67 Impala, then communicated to him the standard wishing rules, clauses, and disclaimers, and asked him for his first wish. He stood there for a brief moment, vexed and with his tattered bathrobe ajar, before blurting out cheesesteak. At that point I knew it was going to be a long night. Though I can't say I was too disappointed in the request, as I hadn't eaten in a year and always favored a bit of grease after a brief nap. After the inclusion of more deli meats in his second wish, this time a salami bagel with cream cheese and spring onions, I quickly realized I was going to have to get involved. What can I say? I felt for the guy. 
So keeping with the genie code, which forbids me from directly making a wish for a client, I suggested he make his third wish count, and hinted at his current state and the blessed life he once lived. Alas, my efforts were futile in the wake of this now decrepit star, as we sat down to our third and final sandwich, a Reuben with American cheese sauce. Unfortunately, transactions of this sort are all too common. Once in 1926, I was summoned by Faye Lawler, celebrated thespian-turned-silent-screen goddess and sepia sex symbol, who wanted all the furniture in her Beverly Hills mansion restuffed and reupholstered, and done so without the aid of magic. I want a fabric that's unorthodox, she said, something the kids are into. In those days, my eye for contemporary decor was passable at best, not to mention my work in textiles was primarily in rugs, particularly of the flying variety. But despite my untrained and clumsy execution, which resulted in me smacking my thumb with a mallet, causing it to swell and pulsate in a cartoonish manner, the wish was granted. Regrettably, after the armchairs and love seats, I was tasked with polishing the silver and then told to head up to the roof afterward and get started on the gutters. After nine hours of cleaning, she put a nickel in my hand, checked my pockets to make sure I didn't steal anything, and reminded me to pick up more wood cleaner before returning the next day. I spent the next seven years cleaning somewhere in the region of 25 homes as I went from garbage bin to garbage bin. Film producer Lonnie Cooper, who lived down the street from Faye Lawler, had me dress up as a hotel chambermaid. He sat in the corner watching me clean and required after every chore that I butter and eat an ear of corn in front of him. Across the street, actress Debbie Mays wished for a grand swimming pool with a large fountain full of leaves, then to neither of our surprise made me clean it. Actor Jerry Price had me mow his lawn and trim the azaleas. The azaleas were fine, but I struggled in the lawn as I have an extreme fear of open spaces. Not all of my clients are deranged. In fact, the majority of them are quite sound, that is, in the medical sense. Still, their wishes are focused monetarily and are almost always wasted on trivial desires. Most of the time, though, these wishes are squandered indirectly, when a client simply fails to think out a request thoroughly. They forget to consider the problematic reality of their wish. Take, for example, Leon Matthews, the hazel-eyed hunk from the TV series Matched Up. Leon asked for the ability to fly, which I granted him immediately. And with outstretched arms, he took off like a jet, circling downtown and buzzing the boardwalk, scooping up cotton candy and churros. Unfortunately, the following day, Leon was grounded at LAX for failing to meet FAA aircraft standards and specifications. The flying heartthrob was fined and required to lengthen his arms by 20 feet and gain 1,000 pounds. Needless to say, the transformation was detrimental to his acting career. Leon Matthews is now a full-time aircraft for the sightseeing group Hollywood Charters. Sadly, there's always an angle, a cosmic stipulation overlooked by virtue of enthusiasm and impatience. Some of my clients view me as a villain, or the product of some Rod Serling narrative. What they don't understand is I'm simply a magical creature of smoke and scorching fire in prison within an oil lamp, trying to do his job as best he can. I came to Hollywood in 1913, courtesy of a housing developer by the name of Walter K.T. Penny. I quickly found myself smack dab in the midst of an economic boom fueled by mounting film studios and a horde of hopeful transplants. It was a wishing frenzy, and the number one request on everybody's lips was wealth and cinematic prestige, a request that remains my top seller. An infinite array of possibilities, and still, people simply want to be rich and famous. 
which incidentally counts as two wishes. Clients are always throwing in and like it's some kind of a running list. The cases that make it all worthwhile, though, are the big ones. The ones that keep on giving to the clients long after the third wish has been granted. That's a line I used to toss around in my earlier days that I eventually adopted as a motto and began printing on my business cards. These are the cases that transform a client's life and appear to everyone else as a self-made success story. And let me tell you, Hollywood's full of them. I take a great deal of pride in knowing I have single-handedly made the better part of this town's more illustrious careers. One of my most notable successes to climb the Hollywood ladder, and to do so without touching a single rung, was film mogul and 30-year studio head Oliver Davenport. We met in 1927 at a wrestling match held at the Olympic Auditorium. At that time, my humble abode was being used to oil up the athletes. Producer of such celebrated classics as Stage to Littlefield, The Oakwood Express, and Up the Shoal on a Steamer Built for Two, Davenport was not only a key player in the financial growth of 1920s Hollywood and the development of a generation of young talent, but was also an industry pioneer with his invention of both the micro-trailer and the 25-hour studio clock. Davenport's strong suit was efficiency, and he made it his primary focus, an interest he pursued even after his death. A stipulation in Davenport's will stated that his funeral was to take place on a soundstage with controlled rain, music cues, and a proper backdrop painting, all in hopes of keeping on-location burial costs to a minimum. He was to be laid to rest beneath the floorboards of Stage 17 at the base of his favorite scenery piece, a 20-foot-high beard maiden from the Germanic farce What's Up With Oodle. The will also included a 30-page script, breakdown sheets, and strict instructions for all mourners to stop by wardrobe for fitting before seeing hair and makeup. In 1938, Davenport purchased his first restaurant, which he supplied with breakaway china and chairs and a ploy to cut operating costs and conserve dishwashing soap. He was one of the richest men in Los Angeles and kept his head above water during every economic crisis and industry upheaval. In fact, he didn't just keep his head above water, he all but hovered feet above it, profiting every bit of the way. During the war, while on production of Codename Mackerel, Davenport began manufacturing firearms for sale to the U.S. government. His company, Silver Screen Arms, mass-produced two models, a comically oversized pistol that squirted water, and a Springfield rifle that, when fired, a cork on a string came flying out of the barrel. And he achieved it all thanks to his silent 5,400-year-old partner. Of all the private and intimate details shared in this book, I never thought I'd mention that one publicly. We genies are very sensitive about our age. There was also 1960s comedy megastar Elaine Dunn. With two PhDs from Hampton, one in philosophy and the other in social policy, neither of which I can take credit for, that honor goes to a brother at the J.J. and Sons Printing Company, Dunn struggled early on to make her mark in pictures, although audiences knew her from her many television appearances performing stand-up. An exceedingly funny woman of unmistakable beauty and unrelenting grit, Dunn's only limitation was a bizarre speech impediment that made everything she said sound insincere. An exceptionally fortunate defect for telling jokes, but in the world of drama, she was far from convincing. Her romantic scenes were particularly sad and emasculated her most manly of scene partners. 
Actor Ford Dalton developed a crippling sense of self-doubt after a reading with a seemingly cynical actress, and as a result took up a rigorous calisthenics program and developed an overwhelming fear of limp produce. She had the bedroom stylings of a sarcastic lover and it was taking her career nowhere and fast. She tried every homemade remedy in the book, both editions in fact. There was whipped cream with ham over easy, whistling with a mouthful of mayonnaise, and lining both sides of her esophagus with cod liver oil. She even made a donation to the National Phonetics Institute of her own accord after they reviewed her case and examined that her proposed treatment was asinine, senseless, and worth a shot. This all changed, though, with the simple snap of my fingers. In those days, I was on a big snapping kick. I didn't used to snap, but had recently done some work for the amazing Mindini and simply fell in love with snapping. Before that, for 2,000 years, I would merely press the palm of my hand firmly on the client's forehead and push them to the floor while granting their wish. The last client I used this technique on was a circus ringleader that started his own religion after I granted him the power of mass perception and provided him with innumerable pieces of literature on federal tax exemptions. Nowadays, I do a swirling motion around their head with some added pink smoke circling their body for a bit of flair. Another, more recent accomplishment was a young actor and singer from Iowa named Bo Simmons, a name now synonymous with achievement and worldwide acclaim. When I met Bo in 2009, after he came into possession of my lamp in a not-so-disappointing game of Yankee Swap, he was represented by an unscrupulous agent named Mitch Haverton, who was known around town for exploiting a number of his clients, and not in the good Hollywood way. He took advantage of countless rising stars, including the entire cast of the long-running TV show, The Junior Detectives Club. Haverton sold their likenesses to a video game company which used the preteen crime solvers in their highly anticipated release, Cannibal Island. And what will be your first wish, I asked young Mr. Simmons. I want to be a celebrity, he said with unbridled ambition, and be wealthy and powerful and have millions of adoring fans and surrounded by beautiful women. Again with the ands, I thought. I suggested to the eager actor that we take things slowly. And so one by one we went down the list. Firstly, I granted him stardom, which took care of his want for wealth and power. Then I gave him unmatched beauty, which took care of the women, that is, the half that weren't already covered by the stardom. And lastly, in a heartwarming, benevolent act, the future star took it upon himself to ask for world peace. I was floored. Sadly, my abilities regarding that matter yield to a chain of command that works in congruence with a long list of ideological infrastructures and belief systems. I regrettably informed the now handsome, well-heeled megastar that the universal wish for world peace was on back order and already scheduled to occur on July 15, 2534 for a period lasting three and a half minutes. Mr. Simmons seemed indifferent, then troubled in light of this new information. He took a moment, then asked if it was too late to change his final wish to something a bit more immediate and practical, like x-ray vision or never having to worry about dry mouth. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg with an introduction by Nicole Kalasich, and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Allenberg and Will Scovel, 
To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.